What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we continue our series on forgive and forget. We began last week looking at the situation in the Middle East and wondered if forgiveness was even possible. Revenge and violence compounded by time and repeated offenses makes for a very complicated picture. Yet there is hope. God forgives us despite all of our shortcomings, and we heard an example of this from someone who was able to forgive despite so much pain and suffering. The same is true for us. Pain and sin against us doesn't have to mean we withhold forgiveness. We can let go pure and simply because it's good for us. We don't absolve another person when we forgive. We find healing in the arms of a loving God. Many of you came and spoke to me last week about how much the message meant to you. Some of you were able to let go of offenses you've been holding on to for years. Others took that first step toward a better relationship with neighbors and family members. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters were listed as people you are forgiving. Praise God for that. We are a better community today because we are letting go and moving on. Now we take a look at what a healthy boundary looks like when it comes to forgiveness. We may be willing to forgive a person for a previous offense, but now what? What if it happens again? What if it gets worse than before? Do we just keep forgiving? Do we just keep taking a person's abuse? Are there no rules? Let's look at our scripture read by Jeff. Uh, It comes from Matthew chapter 5, which is the same chapter as last week. This is still the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most challenging portion of Scripture ever taught by Jesus. He has said not only that we shouldn't murder, but that we shouldn't even be angry. He said not only should we not commit adultery, but that we shouldn't even look at a man or woman with lust in our hearts. Divorce should only be for when adultery has been committed. This standard is raised far above what the rules would allow. Then he shares concerning oaths and retaliation. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard what it was said You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and, 
and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous unrighteous for if the love for if you love those and love you what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same and if you greet only your brothers and sisters what more are you doing than others do not even the gentiles do the same be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect and from Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community, passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts and lives this day that we would discern what a healthy boundary for forgiveness ought to look like. Help our lives improve as we follow your law for health and wholeness in body, mind, and soul. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Earlier this week, I was taking a walk with my wife, Emily, and she shared with me how we were taking our morning walk too late in the morning. It was causing her headaches because she needed to get other stuff done by a certain time to keep the morning flowing. My lazy start to the day was not working for her. Now, I am admittedly a late sleeper. This is nothing new in our relationship. I have always gone to bed later than her and woken up later than her. It's been true for nearly 15 years of marriage. But what I didn't recall was a conversation we had at the start of this new school year that changed our entire schedule. Uh, our son is in middle school now, which means school starts an hour earlier. I had agreed to get up a mere 15 minutes earlier to accommodate this huge shift in the schedule, and here I was reverting back to our years-long schedule, totally oblivious to the impact it was having on the rest of the family. It was a small request, which I had said yes to, and then forgotten about. And when she pointed this out to me on our walk, what do you think I said? Did I say, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I need to follow through on my agreement with you? No, I said, leave me alone, let's stop talking about this. I was totally wrong and could not admit to it. Now, that's not the only disagreement Emily and I have had. Just a couple of weeks ago, I came home from work and I noticed that the downstairs bathroom light was left on. It wasn't just the light, though. This switch connects to a fan, too. So every time someone leaves the light on, it leaves the fan on, too. And for some reason, I was just fed up with this situation. I had tried to separate the switches when I had renovated the bathroom a few years ago and couldn't because of how it was wired. And since then, I've probably turned that light and fan combination off somewhere around 50,000 times. I was sick of it. And I demanded that the switch be changed to a timer, even if it was the last thing I did on this planet. Emily, though, was aghast. She didn't want to install a silly timer. She wanted to teach our children to turn the light off and said she had a system to make it happen. So the deal was I would buy the new timer and she would work with the children. If she couldn't get them to change their behavior, I could install the new device. I think that was a pretty clever agreement. Now every day when I come home, I walk in and I say, "Hun, 
Can you hear it? Is that the sound of the fan on downstairs? Is it time for me to install the timer? And she shouts, no, no, she doesn't want it to change. Emily and I want to be parents together, working through these issues as a united front. Even when we may disagree in a particular area, we, we talk it over, we find common ground, sometimes accommodating, sometimes compromising, but always working together toward a solution. I heard someone describe marriage this week as a constant renegotiation of how two people choose to live together. And that seems about right to me. You say yes to be with another person, and then you are just working it out. Every day, new problems and new situations rise, but choosing to work through it together is literally what marriage is. Now, negotiating and making things work is not automatic. Talking through a disagreement with someone can actually make them choose the exact opposite of what you want. It's called the backfire effect. The more we are presented with evidence that conflicts with our beliefs, the more we may resist that evidence. This is related to confirmation bias. You might know that term. We are more likely to accept the things that line up with what we already think. So when someone tries to convince us of something different, we might dig our heels in even more. Reminds me of a story of a renter who had a boiler break in the middle of winter. He called the landlord repeatedly but got no response back. And after a few days, he called a repairman to put in a new motor and paid for the work himself. When the landlord finally got back to him, the landlord refused to pay the bill. He said the renter broke the lease by not waiting for the landlord. And the renter replied that the landlord also broke the lease by not responding during an emergency. The landlord didn't care. He wouldn't pay and told the renter to put this down as a lesson learned and to move on and hung up the phone. So months later, the renter moved out, but before he did, he called the repairman back up and had him uninstall what was now technically his motor. It took several months for the landlord to find out, and when he did, he was livid. He called up the renter, screaming at him, and the renter simply replied, well, let's put this down as a lesson learned and move on and hung up on him. The landlord thought he was all right and couldn't see it from any other perspective until his own ignorance came back to bite him. That's confirmation bias. We only see things from our perspective and reject everything else that doesn't fit with it. It's just not a healthy way to live. Instead, there's something I heard about recently called internal family systems. It's a way of recognizing that there is more than one way to look at a situation. We often have these internal voices that guide our behavior. An internal voice might tell us, look out for number one, telling us to do the thing that benefits ourselves rather than others. Or a voice inside might say, that person is in need. If it were you, you'd want someone to stop and help you. Sometimes we try to silence these different voices and just do what we always do. But internal family systems is about recognizing each voice, weighing what it is telling us, and choosing an appropriate course of action. We can get so caught up in how we feel or the emotions of a situation that we start listening to the wrong 
voice, we get laser-focused on our way of seeing things instead of opening up and weighing these different voices and perspectives. In fact, we can get to a point where we are so good at only hearing one voice, we don't even hear the other voices anymore. We just hear our own way, not even seeing that another way is possible. Jesus, in his day, had people that couldn't commit to a task, saying one thing and doing another, and they couldn't see what was wrong with that. They did not hear any other voices. The custom was to make an oath swearing to God or the church or something important. But a good religious person back then knew it was definitely wrong to swear to God, so instead people swore on all sorts of other things. A rabbi would actually have the job of listening to what a person or object someone would swear by and determining whether that oath a person made was actually valid. So if you swear by the church, yeah, you have to keep that one. But if you swear by a turkey, well, you don't have to follow through on that one. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is saying. Stop with this swearing business. Don't think that you can say one thing and do another by tricking someone into swearing on an object that doesn't hold meaning. The point Jesus is making is that in reality, everything belongs to God. So any object or person you swear on means you should always follow through on it. So why bother with the swearing business? Let your word be your word with a simple yes or no. Then Jesus goes even deeper saying, look, you can't even control whether your hair turns gray or not. Why do you swear an oath to do something or not when you have so little control in this world? Then he continues with the issue of non-resistance. If you can't control the hairs on your head, how could you possibly control other people? Someone could walk right up to you and slap you on the cheek. I know it doesn't sound that bad, but this was actually a terrible insight in, uh, insult in ancient times. It was so insulting you'd have to pay a fine or publicly let the person slap you back in front of everyone. It was just like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If someone did something terrible to you, you got to do it right back to them. But you couldn't control the other person. You couldn't prevent them from doing something insulting or injuring. You could only pay them back in kind. That's why Jesus flips the whole situation. Society was obsessed with getting back at people, trying to make things even. But getting back at someone doesn't actually make it even. It just increases bad blood and violence. He points in a totally different direction. Instead of getting back at them when they slap you, turn the other cheek. If they sue you and take your outer coat, which was totally against the law because it was essentially a person's blanket at night, give them your inner coat too. If a soldier comes along and demands you carry his equipment for a mile, take it for two miles. This actually puts the soldier in an awkward position because the law said you could only take it one mile. If he made you go farther than that, the soldier could get in trouble with his commanding officer. Why is Jesus telling us to be so passive then, so accepting of these wrongs? It almost feels like he's pushing us in the complete 
opposite direction, which would be a different kind of wrong, wouldn't it? But watch what happens in the last example in this passage. Finally, Jesus says, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy because God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God does good to both good and bad people. And you, Jesus says, ought to do exactly the same. God offers mercy to all, so I want you to show mercy to all. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. Now, we can get tripped up on that last part. Being perfect sounds like we have to follow the law, all the rules perfectly, so we can't be faulted for any of our actions, but that's probably not what it means here. Perfect can mean complete or whole and often includes the meaning of merciful. Jesus is saying fulfilling the requirements of all these previous verses, not by being in control and making people do right and not wrong in this world. No, that's not the way forward. You can't control that. Instead, what you can control is the mercy you show to others. Imitate God in all you do by showing mercy. What? All of these rules Jesus is bulldozing over is not about making the law even harder to follow. It's to recognize that the law can never be perfectly fulfilled until you are showing mercy to everyone. Oh my goodness, I feel like I've been living my whole life all wrong. The voice inside of us that we need to be listening to is not the one that gets us what we want or makes things even or fair. It's the voice that leads us to offer mercy to others, even the people we would see as our enemies. This is not to excuse bad behavior or to tolerate evil at work in our world, but it is to put the mercy of God at the very center of our interactions with others. When you are getting fed up with someone who keeps doing the same wrong and offensive thing over and over, the answer is not to shut them up. It's not to make rules to put them in their place. It's to remind yourself that we all have shortcomings. It's to be patient with someone who is different from you. Most of us are pretty, pretty open to helping others, especially people we know are hurting or vulnerable, but it can be a lot harder when it comes to people who hurt us. Can you show mercy and sympathy to the person who has actively hurt you? It may have been a long time since you listened to that voice inside that doesn't judge that other person. Every once in a while, though, God breaks through and reminds us they are a person too. God loves them just as much as he loves you. Open your heart to the pain they face, the pain of a hard life, of hardships you'll never know that that person faces. That's what mercy is. It's choosing to love someone and forgive them even when they choose to do the wrong thing. 
This past week, I had a chance to visit with B. Uh, many of you know her, and she recently broke her arm. Uh, so I, I went to see her in rehab. And if any of you talked to B since she went to rehab, you know exactly what I was walking into. I, I go into the room, and she says, Oh, pastor, the food here is terrible. First thing out of her mouth. I think everyone in a five-mile radius of her knows she thinks the food there stinks. Uh, But then she told me how Carol had come to visit her, and she had just brought her lunch. What a sweet and kind gesture that was. We have so many good people here at Grace that are willing to help their friends here and and other members. It is a beautiful thing. And the question God is asking us in the middle of this is, will you bring that same meal to someone who is not your friend? Will you bring it to the person who actively annoys you? Will you bring it to the person who even harms you and you might call your enemy? That's the person God wants you to show mercy to today. Let's end with this. Uh, There's an old story of Peter Miller, a a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. Miller lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and one of his dearest friends was General George Washington. In the town of Ephrata, there was a troublemaker named Michael Whitman who hated Peter Miller for leaving his church and joining the Baptist church. Whitman did everything he could to ruin Miller, once punching him in the face and another time spitting on him. One day, Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to death. When he heard the news, Miller set out to Philadelphia to plead for the life of his enemy. After walking 70 miles on foot, Miller petitioned his friend, General George Washington, to spare Whitman's life. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's not my friend. In fact, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? cried Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant you your pardon. And he did. That day, Miller and Whitman walked back home to Ephrata together. When they arrived home, they were no longer enemies. They were friends. Mercy changed that relationship. And the opportunity to show mercy is all around us. A healthy boundary in our relationships is not to figure out all the rules and ways to get people to do what we think is right and live how we think they should live. The way forward is to show mercy, to be perfect as God is perfect, blessing everyone, whether you call them friend or foe. You can't control what others do. You can only control what you do in response. And the message from Jesus is clear. Choose mercy. Choose grace. Forgive others and love them because that's exactly what God has done for you. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.